on to your butt. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 100 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by Mary, a woman who has put up with me for 100 episodes and hasn't dumped me in the ocean like tea yet. I am merely Darren. How are we doing, Mary? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a it's a great day. We're going to have some fun today. It's episode 100. We got to find yep. a way to celebrate. Centennial. Well, I think we found a pretty good way to celebrate this one. Yeah, I think so. You know, today is a special episode, not only because we have officially hit that century mark, but we do have a special guest today. But first, we certainly like to thank everybody who's listened to the Silly Podcast for 100 episodes. Never in a million years thought we'd even get a fraction of this. We couldn't do it without the listeners, which we definitely appreciate. That being said, you know, we don't usually do guests, but for the man joining us today, we're certainly happy to make the exception. Uh, joining us today is Alexander Rose. He's the author of six books covering a wide variety of historical events. What we're going to talk about is, uh, is the lion and like the fox, the two rival spies and the secret plot to build a Confederate Navy. But he's also uh, written Washington Spies, the story of America's first spy ring. And people may have seen the TV show Turn on AMC. That's his baby. He wrote and produced that. He's also awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship Award in 2020, Mary. So that's, um, nice. that's pretty big doing. So being civil war nerds his latest book the lion and the fox is, is right in our wheelhouse so we are thrilled to have alex with us to discuss it in all that navy espionage that took place in england during the civil war so thank you for joining us alex welcome well thanks for having me on pleasure to be here you are centennial episode we're very honored to have you on here and like we were talking about before we started recording the navy has always been something that we've talked about you know doing a full episode on for a while touched on it here and there with like fort fisher wilmington and all that but not like this so this is going to be you're using your book as kind of the background your book is going to be kind of our introduction to starting to talk more about the uh, the navy in the civil war and well, not to not to jump ahead but alex will be joining us on the book club here soon to talk about the specific book and i think one of the most understudied and certainly probably the most underappreciated aspects of the american civil war you know is the navy in short people know about the, the brown water ships that you know, attacked vicksburg etc but if you really understand that cat and mouse game that took place between the Union and Confederates when it came to that Winfield Scott's Anaconda plan blockade to keep Southern cotton away from England and keep weapons and supplies away from the Confederacy. And, and Alex, your book is really the first I think I've ever really read that really delves into that cloak and dagger effort that goes so far to enlighten uh, those who really had no idea that was going on. So maybe we'll, we'll start with this, the situation going in early 1861 that was facing both the Union and the Confederates when it came to the Navy. There was a huge problem when they began, when the, you know, the war opened for the Union and the Confederacy. I mean, they both relied on their, you know, sea lanes you know, with the world's hyperpower, which was Britain, especially for cotton, uh, you know, various other textile industries. The Union under Lincoln obviously wanted to stop that trade. And so they imposed a blockade on the southern coast, you know, the, east, the eastern seaboard and the, uh, down to the Gulf of Mexico. And the Confederacy obviously needed to break that blockade. So they were playing for big, big stakes here. Um, and one of them is, is that according to international law at the time, you couldn't just, as Lincoln did, say there was a blockade. You actually had to back it up with something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, everybody would just be blockading each other. So what the Confederacy has to do, according to international law, is show that it's, they said, ineffective, that there's this is this huge holes in it. You know, if, if it's a hold, you know, uh, blockade, it's it's just simply not legally enforceable. It's not, it doesn't have to be recognized by the other great powers of the world, such as France and, and Britain. That was a declaration of Paris, 1854. And, and just like you point, it just, if you say you're going to block it, then you better have the boats to block it. And, and when, when the Union effort started, they had about 40 ships. The Confederates really only had the one. And it, it did grow in time. But if it wasn't, if you didn't have the ability to really defend it, then it became optional. And then it became up to the country, in this case, England, to actually honor it or not. And, yeah. you know, in England, like you said, relied so much on Southern cotton is a huge part of that economy. You know, white gold is what they called it. And, and they also had to try to find the fine line, which was a big issue that happened right around when the war started, of England maintaining neutrality. And that really changed. So we talk about the characters involved here. Thomas Dudley had originally gotten that position. We'll talk about him in just a minute. It must have seemed like the easiest job in the world. You sit in, you sit in England. Kind of, but then when neutrality happened, his job took a lot. It really turned into a real, you know, that cloak and dagger thing. And, you know, you have 42 commissioned northern ships. It just showed that disparity, the North and the South when it came to industry. You know, the South only had two naval yards, had one in Norfolk, Virginia, and one in Pensacola, Florida, and neither were really equipped to build a Navy. 
And that's what this whole thing turned into. It turned into finding a way to build them and deliver them. So the Confederates really had three pronged attack to how to deal with this. And your book talks specifically about, it. and that's kind of sets the sets the really the skeleton of what the Confederates were trying to do with those those three plans. Mm-hmm. It was essentially, uh, you know, a three phase plan. I mean, that, it's a, that's quite general. That's how the book is structured because otherwise it gets mm-hmm. all, all very. Uh-huh. Yeah. And things overlap and all this kind of stuff. You know, the South needs to keep its trade routes open with Britain, but cotton especially, and also coming back across the Atlantic, munitions, guns, and uh, other, you know, war material. So what they do is, and as you point out, they don't really have the industrial capacity to build their own blue water navy. They have to buy one kind of off the shelf or commission one in Britain. The way they do this is the first thing to do is phase one, which is to build you know, kind of a swarm of blockade runners. Point of that would be is that that would show that Lincoln's insolent paper blockade, as I think Jefferson Davis once put it, well, you know, was ridiculous. It was an absurdity. You, uh, you know, nobody should pay any attention. Nobody should honor this. So you just have a, a fleet of very fast, sleek blockade runners running in and out of the southern ports to Nassau and then to Britain. The second phase is that you need to build commerce raiders, that is, attack ships like the Alabama and the Florida and so on. And they would start attacking Union merchant vessels. Like, really, let's, you know, why should we be taking all the hits? Let's start bringing this war home to President Lincoln, you know, really hitting his, you know, sort of greedy northern merchants in the pocket. And then they'll kind of force him to seek an armistice with us. And then the third phase was going to be the knockout blow. And that was to build what were called the Laird Rams. They're called Laird because that was the name of the shipyard in Britain. Laird's was the, the, the sort of the premier shipyard, iron build. You know, they were masters of iron mm-hmm. in Britain. They commissioned a couple of, of rams, and which were exactly what you think, what they sound like. They are big, advanced weapons platforms that were ironclad, which was, again, fairly, you know, kind of a new phenomenon at mm-hmm. the time. Plus they had a... <laughs> A giant ram at the front yep. prowl, which would basically they their job was to go out and seek and basically ram Union frigates, Union warships, and sort of drown them at sea. You know that would break the U.S. Navy uh, finally. So it was a three phase plan that was going to go on. It was it was pretty well thought out, and they sent over an agent, James Bullock, set this in motion and to carry it through. And you know his antagonist, as you mentioned before, was Thomas Dudley, his Union antagonist. Yeah, the cast of characters in this is so just they're intriguing like and they all have their quirks and all that and the other thing too um is liverpool at this time is such a i don't know the the first thing i thought of when i read the description of liverpool was like this sounds like the the only way i can think of was was like gangs in new york how new york was with the different that movie how new york was at a certain time like that's liverpool is just this place where i mean it's obviously an area of commerce it's where people are coming in from all over the world but just it's a very kind of shady spot to be well that, that's what i was trying to get through that liverpool itself is is a character in the yeah. book it's a bit like uh, new york city was in washington spies it's a yeah. kind of a character's own right it's kind yeah. of an interesting place i mean we we're, we're accustomed to thinking of liverpool of you know is where those cheeky mop tops were from the yes. beatles <laughs> yes, exactly. uh, liverpool football and things like that i mean that's what you basically think of when you think of liverpool liverpool at the time was the world's greatest most most magnificent port metropolis they were built more ships in liverpool each year than the rest of the world combined by a colossal margin it was also the center of the world's cotton trade which was then one of the world's biggest industries. People people tend to forget that now. They had a cotton exchange there where they kind of almost invented the you know futures and commodity markets and so on. It was a very you know it was a, it was a real financial center, real manufacturing center, and a real shipbuilding center. So, but again, there were like most cities, it was a little like you know in Blade Runner, you have uh, like yeah. you know you have areas where uh, unbelievable poverty. Yes. Most uh-huh. caused by you know the, the rise of mass industrialization and the movement of of rural population and from Ireland into the cities for jobs and for you know working in factories and being on the waterfront and being sailors and so on. You know, so you have colossal overcrowding there. But there's also extreme wealth too. You know, you have some of the sort of the fanciest addresses in the country there. You know, people who have made families, dynasties that have made titanic fortunes in at first, you know, in the 18th century, it was mostly slavery. They, and then they, that converted into cotton trading, as I mentioned, shipbuilding. Um, 
But, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, in about 1800 or so, Liverpool was this fairly modest ship, in you know, a little sort of seafront town. It had a lot of fishermen there. That was about it. But over that over that 60 years until the Civil War, I mean, the population sextupled, I think. I mean, it was a huge influx and it became, a, it was, you know, the second city of, of Britain, which basically meant it was this, uh, you know, real, it was like, you know, kind of like sort of New York on the Mersey. So, yeah, so Liverpool is, is a very interesting city. I like the fact that the book is set there because not people don't really think about Liverpool that much. No. Yeah. Off the beaten track, even yeah. though it is it's a major, major player in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see why it was the kind of the perfect backdrop for espionage. Bullock is able to kind of hide out there and t- stay two steps ahead. Interesting guy. We'll talk real quick about him. You know, James, James Dudwaddy Bullock, you know, he's from Savannah, Georgia. And he's going to be that liaison that's going to be between the Secretary of Navy, Stephen Mallory for the Confederacy and England. Despite Georgian by birth, he's going to live in New York City and he's going to have a job working for the Alabama Steam Company. And he steamed a boat called the Bienville from New York to New Orleans and all these other places. But once the war started, you know, he wasn't allowed to take his ship south of Washington. And then he started to be forced to start transporting Union troops. And at that point, he wasn't interested. He resigned. Bullock was, a with, without a doubt, a Southern sympathizer who hated Republicans. Fun fact about him, he was the uncle of Teddy Roosevelt, which uh, which is interesting, who helped him publish his book later in life. We'll, we'll probably get to that towards the very end. But soon later, he's recruited by the Attorney General uh, Judah Benjamin to basically meet with the Rebel Secretary of, of, of Navy, Jan- Stephen Mallory, we talked about, about this mission. And Bullock was a great captain. Uh, he and his ship certainly would have been an attractive target for someone like Mallory. And this is all happening right at the time of the firing of Fort Sumter in April of 1861. Bullock was a captain. He made a deal with the Confederacy to, for the most part, be at their secret agent to help them as that middleman from the rebel government uh, in those uh, those Southern sympathizers in England and Liverpool, which there were a lot, who lived and died by needing cotton. And he was basically, they were going to use this to help basically finance these boats to help that three-pronged attack that Alex talked about a little bit ago. And in Liverpool, to his point, was the capital of sea uh, cap building at the time, as well as a lot of colorful characters. And like to Mary's point, it sounds like a Charles Dickens town, ultra poor people, a lot of rich people. And really, this this is kind of where the, the whole thing would begin. And really, and, and there's neutrality was hitting right at this time as well. In a perfect world, he would go over there to Alex's point, he'd pick a few boats out, he'd send them over, and that was it. But when neutrality happened, it really changed everything. And once Bullock started his activities, the union had to be really obsessed with stopping him because they realized pretty quickly what he was up to. And the guy that they put in charge of kind of being the one who foiled him was a guy named Thomas Dudley. And now, Alex, I'm sure you'll agree, Tom Dudley was everything Bullock was. I mean, this is a guy that every time he smiled, his face cracked. He just was, had, was <laughs> never really had much of a personality. He was an old Quaker. He was somebody who, unfortunately, was in a sea accident uh, in, in the 1850s that almost cost him his life. And because of that, when he had a choice to pick what job he wanted, being the minister of Japan, which sounds pretty cool, or a consul in Liverpool, He's going to pick Liverpool because they had better medicals in his mind. He had a better set of medicine. Just like before neutrality, his job was probably pretty easy. But once it happened, it turned into him being one of the most important people in the union government in American history that no one knows about. Dudley and Bullock are the the, the lion and the fox of the of the title. As you say, you know, they were very, very different characters with very, very different different mm-hmm. backgrounds. And they both you know, they could mutually loathed each other. Bullock was the fox. He was, you know, he, again, quite sleek, quite devious, very cunning, very amusing, very charming, very dexterous, quite worldly and cynical and all this kind of stuff. Whereas Dudley was a kind of a, you know, middle-aged Quaker with no discernible sense of humor whatsoever, but he was the lion. I mean, he was a rigid abolitionist, you know, following the tenet of his creed, you know, from decades before the war, he would put on disguises or what he thought was a kind of a southern slave trader outfit, which consisted of a, a big hat and a whip and head down south and, you know, try and, you know, either purchase slaves who'd been sort of kidnapped from the north and brought down to the, the plantations of the of the deep south, or he would, you know, otherwise rescue them and, and bring them back across the Mason-Dixon line, um, you know, which was a dangerous game to play. I mean, it was very easy to end up on the, the side of the ditch if you, if you, you know, yeah. got caught doing you know, he backed up his, you know, his words with with action. So he is the lion. You know, he has a, a, a sort of a valor to him, you know, a steadfastness to him that Bullock didn't really have. And so you've got this clash between 
these two very conflicting, very different characters in, in one small place in Liverpool. Their offices were just several minutes walk from each other. It was a very small world, and as you say, Dickensian world of Liverpool. So that that was what really attracted me to the story, the fact that they're both very, very different men, and they both use different strategies to, to you know, to win. And the, out of both of them, Dudley, the lion, has to change the most. He has to, over the course of the book, he has to become the fox. And when he does, he eventually, you know, sort of takes out Bullet and his work. So it's a great sort of, great story of, uh, you know, a man who sort of learns the ways of the world and, and overcomes the challenges. Bullock, he's in, he's in Liverpool. It's basically every bar is like the cantina in Star Wars. <laughs> if you can imagine that. That's kind of how, how it is. You know, one issue that they, they have to work out pretty quickly is finance. They have to find somebody with deep pockets who can help finance all this. They had one in a contact from a company based in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was called Fraser Trenholm and Company. And its senior partner was a guy named Charles Prelo. And, you know, Prelo, well, he was from Charleston as well, and he actually fought for the United States in the Mexican War. But now he was a Southerner through and through. He actually flew a Confederate flag on, on his mansion in England. And Bullock was on his way to England. You know, he's going to take that circuitous route and it's going to take him, you know, take him all the way there. For the most part, the union knew he was coming. They knew he had about $400,000 or probably pounds, actually, probably pounds uh, to buy this fleet, really to buy 10 steamboats at the time. And for the most part, he is now an official rebel agent. Dudley is the, the one who's going to chase him down. You picture Bullock as the guy twisting his mustache. You know, he's the one <laughs> in the alleys. And, you know, and, 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 and I, always, I always imagine, you know, Dudley to be kind of like one of those, you know, the guy from um, like a prohibition type thing trying to chase Al Capone around. Just straight dour <laughs> by the book. Yeah, he's an, yes. like an Elliot Ness type of character. <laughs> yeah. you know, speaking of Dudley, he was new to the job. I mean, the U.S. minister to England, he was a guy named Charles Adams. Who, you know, he was the son of John Quincy Adams and the grandson of John Adams, presidents, who all had that same job at one point, which I always thought was kind of neat. He was new to the job. And then when England took neutrality, which I have to think ticked off both the North and the South for the most part, it created this two bickering brothers, the North and the South, you know, fighting over, over England. So Adams' task for the most part, more than anything, was to make sure that England didn't enter the war on behalf of the Confederacy. And, and, and everything really hinged on that naval blockade. It was one that was the big challenge. And so you can see exactly how the whole thing is going. Because when we think of the block from the Civil War perspective, we think of sneaking gunpowder and cannon and everything through the blockade into the United States. But the big part really was getting caught and out. And that was, that was a huge part about it was how much their economy, for the most part, really was involved in cotton and how much that must have made Lincoln nervous as far as that neutrality goes. At the beginning, the South sort of scored what it looked like a brilliant goal, but in fact turned out to be a terrible own goal in declaring a cotton embargo in the sense that they would stop voluntarily their own exports of cotton to Britain. And the reason for this was not to punish the Union, because it didn't do anything to the Union. It was to induce the British into siding with them and in a kind of a grand romantic Anglo-Confederate alliance of some kind against the, the hated North. Because, you know, the North was not favored in Britain by any means. Lincoln was regarded as a tariff man and, a, and you know, more concerned about his merchants, you know, a bit of a thug and all those kind of stuff, not pro-British at all. Uh, whereas the Summers were all these, you know, high-minded plantation gentlemen, Aristos. Yeah. <laughs> There's a kind of a sort of a strange romantic view of the whole thing. As the South knew, the Britain was terribly dependent on those cotton imports. Millions and millions of bales of cotton, first grade, top grade, first class Southern cotton coming into Liverpool each year. The reason is, is that Britain, they say about 20% you know, of the population of Britain was directly or indirectly reliant on that cotton trade, which is quite mind boggling if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, it the people, factory owners, to the people working in factories, to the shipping trade, to bakers who made the bread for the factory workers. I mean, it could be anyone, any of their children and so on. The British were well aware of, of a very dangerous addiction to southern cotton, but it was part of the foundations of their wealth. So the cotton comes in in a kind of a raw state from the south, goes to Liverpool. It's then traded out in the market. And it's then bought up by, um, the, by the great factory owners and manufacturers. It's then refined into beautiful textiles, shirts, sheets, 
in anything you can think of, it's then re-exported to the rest of the world. That's where you get the giant mock-ups. What the South calculated on was in order to persuade the Brits to leave off this ridiculous neutrality talk and, you know, finally, come on guys, make up your mind, we're the good guys here, is to try and threaten a national heart attack. That is, you stop the cotton. What happens in Britain, which had just kind of emerged from, you know, quite a, a lot of industrial unrest uh, over the last couple of decades, you can be threatened almost of, of perhaps with a revolution of some kind if the cotton stops. There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, that it, it's sort of logically that works, but it's never really a good idea to threaten a superpower like that, especially when, you know, their necks are on the line. So it doesn't work. There's enough leakage through the through the blockade to bring an, kind of enough cotton in, just enough to cover British needs. The British also begin to realize, well, why are we relying on these Southerners? Why don't we have an empire why don't we grow more cotton in, say, Egypt or India? Now, the, the quality is nowhere near as good, and it takes some time to build up those kind of, of that kind of you know, ability to, to process uh, cotton, as the South did. But, you know, it will happen. So the South is actually, this is a giant own goal over the, over the course of time. But what the British do instead is they keep on just this balancing act of neutrality. You know, they t tend to have a bit of a thumb on the scale for the South because there are so many Southern sympathizers in Parliament and in business and, in, uh, you know, in the newspapers and, you know, amongst the, you know, the, the great and the good. But it doesn't work. They don't ever declare in favor of the South because they realize that, that you know, they can't afford to annoy the Union too much, especially once it starts beginning to look like the Union could actually win this thing. Yeah. You don't want to be caught on the wrong side. So it's a, you know it's a very complicated strategic and diplomatic and and international matter. It's not just about two guys in Liverpool having a little fight over a navy. This whole you know the the navy is the sort of the nub of a much larger sort of picture here, which is what I you know I try and discuss in the book a bit about what what the real the really big stakes are here. Eighty percent of the cotton England got was from the American South, and that was the big the important part of that first phase. If they could get that blockade running successfully, it would it would basically give incentive or confidence to those British merchants to be more comfortable dealing with the South. And that's really why Bullock was enemy number one for the Union. He was on William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, on his radar. No question about that. Bullock is going to arrive you know, in June of 1861 in Liverpool, and he'll meet with that Charles Prelo from Fraser Trenholm and Company. And he was dealing himself at 20,000 bales of cotton a day. So he was a big player in that cotton trade. So now what happens, Bullock has that finance year that he needs. Someone who's going to help the cotton and keep the cash going, and because really, if you can if you can do that, it's it's easy money. Because he needed that money to continue building those boats. A stoppage in cotton supplied by the you know by the South would create a financial disaster, and we saw it as the war went on, especially towards the end when the blockade kind of tightened up a little bit. It was not just cotton going into the United States too; it was chandeliers and tea and all these fancy things, furs. That were going over there too well because people in the south they like to live a certain way especially with the money so was they were relying on more than that if he could get more ships and free up more ships to go through that blockade it's going to make that economy so much better and so when dudley was quick to try to stop this he's going to kind of begin to bring in some spies to find what's going on. And he had one of my favorite peoples, a guy that his nickname was the Black Crow, a guy named Henry Sanford. And he was a dude, he always dressed in black, he was arrogant, and he, I can't imagine he was very, uh, he was happy. He had a job of keeping what he called a blacklist, keeping an idea of what boats were the blockade runners. He didn't really go by his own set of rules. You know, he loved, he was not averse to kidnapping, murder, whatever it took. That's how he was. But again, he's a dangerous guy because he's someone you have to keep neutrality. You can't be grabbing people. We'll talk about the Trent affair here in a little while, but you have to find a way to, to do it. And as you see Dudley's transformation throughout this period, you can kind of see how you know he kind of deals with that. A guy named Paddington Palaki is another one. These cast of characters that people don't realize unless they read your book or they study the history about what the, the, the efforts the union was, was going into. Palaki spoke seven languages. He was somebody who uh, his job was to find Bullock. And how long did it take him to find him? There's a lot going on before Dudley right. even 
arrives in in England. Uh, Dudley arrives, I think, in December 1861. So the war's been going on a little bit. Since, uh, before then, Bullock has been just ruling the roost and just beating everyone hands down because he's in a friendly environment. Even, yes, he has to work within British rules. He Yes, he's confronted by the unexpected declaration of neutrality. You know, when he gets over there, he has to work within certain ways. What the Union does, the early part of the war, they have Charles Francis Adams running the ministry or essentially the embassy in London. And uh, a fellow called, as you said, Henry Sanford shows up, the Black Crow, which I, I'm pretty sure is a nickname that he used one he liked to popularize himself. That is a great nickname. <laughs> Yeah, call a cool black. That's a cool he, name. Because he dressed all in black. He was a very wealthy uh, guy. You know, he was a stout Republican. I mean, he was, you know, he believed in what he was doing. The problem with Sanford is that he was, uh, he was just one of these people who just loves intrigue and skullduggery and covert operations. He just loves that kind of stuff. He was a real uh, dirty tricks man. He just loved that stuff. He goes over and he kind of takes over Union intelligence in Britain. He hooks up with uh, a, a kind of a private detective there called, um, his name was Ignatius or Ignaz uh, Pollocky, but better known as Paddington Pollocky, who was one of the world's first private detectives. Possible influence on Arthur Conan Doyle's, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes later on. Pollocky was one of these guys, you know, he was a, a kind of refugee from the Habsburg Empire. You know, he did know seven languages. He was a bit of a police informer, a little bit of undercover work. You know, one of those guys who hangs around on the sort of the outskirts of the secret world, yeah. you know, sort of the Merc. I'm an odd fellow. A lot of the time his bread and butter is to, you know, follow around adulterers for blackmail material for their soon-to-be ex-spouses, all this kind of, you know, this kind of yeah. stuff. Sanford hires him because they're kind of like two peas in the pod, and their job is to find Bullock to try and stop him. The problem with them is that they set off fire alarms wherever they go. Between Sanford saying things like, you know what we should do? Um, when we find one of Bullock's ships carrying weapons or cotton, we should just blow it up in the in the Thames <laughs> right outside of Parliament and just put nothing to do with it. When Charles Francis Adams, the ambassador, finds out about this, he I mean he freaks because his job, his job is to keep things on the level. His job is to make sure that the Brits don't get overexcited. <laughs> Right. They're already, their finger is already in the pulling the trigger for the South. If they hear word of, of Sanford's little escapades, it'll cause a colossal diplomatic ruckus. This comes to fruition during, as you mentioned, the Trent Affair, where they the two countries come you know, sort of this close to going to war with each other. You know, Sanford is the Captain Wilkes in Britain, of the sort of the land-based Captain Wilkes. I mean, he's a guy who acts by himself and doesn't ask permission. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He just does stuff. And so he has this crew of of black operatives kind of thing. One too many operations go wrong and Bullock escapes and the British government notices what's going on. With a great deal of pleasure, Adams gets to fire Sanford and Pollocky for that matter after you know one too many disasters. That leaves the role of Union intelligence open. Bullock, again, Bullock is just running, you're running the table here. It's at that point that Dudley just by happenstance, gets sent over as consul, which is a fairly low, you know, embassy, uh, you know, diplomatic position, to Liverpool. And it falls upon him because that is bullet territory. It falls upon him to inherit, again, inadvertently, what has become the world's most critical intelligence posting. And that's how it all happens. So when Dudley inherits, he's instructed by Adams to, for God's sake, you know, just no, you know, covert operations. Don't <laughs> blow it up. Stop Stop getting into the newspapers. Whatever you do, just keep an eye on Bullock and send me, you know, what Sanford had been supposed to do, which was called the blacklist. And that is simply a list of ships going in and out of Liverpool Harbour. You know, that's it. That's all you need to do. And then we'll send it to the embassy. Embassy will send it to Washington. They'll transmit it to the U.S. Navy. And hopefully the U.S. Navy will then intercept those ships and, you know, going by their description. That's all you have to do. You know, the problem then becomes much more complicated. And that's when it's at that point that Bullock starts constructing, moving on to phase two, constructing the great commerce raiders puts Dudley right in the eye of, you know, in the in the heat of it. So that's when the game changes. And the, and the one thing too is right around then, for the most part, after the Trent Affair, England had kind of put the kibosh on sending weapons across. And when, when phase two started, when they're going to build those raiders, Bullock and company had to deal with something called the Foreign Enlistment Act of 1819. And what that basically meant was if you're you're going to build a merchant ship, and for the most part, it says you can't, they wanted to maintain neutrality. You could not build warships that were going to be used against basically an ally. 
in this case, the United States. And so it was written in 1819. So it was an old, it wasn't like they just put this on, but here's the challenge now. So, so for Bullock, he wants to build warships, but he knows he can't because of this. And he, they don't want to violate that. Some of the guys will talk about Miller and Laird. Some of the shipbuilders were very focused on this. So you had to build these ships that were basically merchant ships. And this is one of my favorite parts of this whole story is how they handled this loophole. So section seven specifically said, no person in any part of the UK shall knowingly equip, furnish, fit out a vessel intended for attack on another foreign power friendly to Britain. But what Bullock did is he found a loophole. So what they would do is they would build these ships designed to be merchant ships. And how he handled this to get them weaponized is, is a fantastic stroke by Bullock. Yeah, it was a brilliant move. The Foreign Enlistment Act of 1819 was originally passed in order to stop British mercenaries, you know, just sort of adventurers <laughs> signing up or uh, little rebellions in South America. That was what it was for. It had never really been used. It had never been, it had never come to, to court. It, it was this great 50 year old bit of legislation that nobody really knew much about. But from Bullock's point of view, it is a huge obstacle because as you read out, you cannot build, furnish, equip um, a knowingly a, a military ship in a British jurisdiction. And what's more, you cannot recruit British subjects to serve on those ships, at least knowingly. There's a lot of potential yeah. ifs and buts. You can sort of see how this is developing. Bullock reads the legislation over and over and over again, and he finds a loophole that you could literally sail a, well, almost literally sail a, sh a fleet through. And that is, is that so long as the ship is not knowingly built as a warship, but it's built as a civilian ship, and it's crewed by British sailors who are not knowingly serving on a potential warship, as long as that ship's built in Liverpool, but then it goes out to international waters that where the Queen's writ does not run. It, there it can rendezvous with a tender, just an old freighter or something that's filled with munitions and guns and, and, and its armaments like cannons and so forth. You can rendezvous with that in international waters. You can then transfer over those armaments onto the so-called civilian ship. And at that point, a Confederate Navy set of officers can come over and commission the ship as a warship into the Confederate Navy. It's a brilliant plan. It all depends on a, the Liverpool shipbuilders, in the sense that they didn't ask any questions, and so Bullock could tell them no lies. And, you know, they're all in favor of Bullock. They all they all know who it's for, but they're not fools. <laughs> exactly. But again, as long as they get covered, as long as they're not knowingly doing anything. As for the British crew, because there's a lot of sailors in the pool, it's easy to get a crew. As long as you don't tell them that this is going to be a Confederate ship, and you tell them it's a civilian ship, and it's going to, uh, you know, the Mediterranean or something like that, to trade olives or olive oil or something. <laughs> Now they will sign on. It's not a problem. And it just so happens that there's a change of plan as soon as you reach that uh, territorial limit. And they, they're actually heading to the Azores or somewhere in the Atlantic. They'll meet up, you know, a small tender and then they'll put, be put to work. And then if they want to, this is, Bullock was always very careful about this. He really insisted on it, that at the time when they're working in the middle of the ocean, crew has to be asked. They have to volunteer to sign up with the Confederate Navy as you know to be inducted into it anyone who doesn't want to has to go back on that tender you can because otherwise you get into problems with potential accusations of kidnapping and all this yeah. kind of stuff on the, on the high seas you know something you don't want to have around. so this whole thing depends on on lots and lots of, of funny cover stories that are being concocted by Bullock and Liverpool you know one of any you know he changes the names of ships he, he creates front companies he uses a bunch of sort of allies and friends most of whom were in the block running trade as, as kind of cutouts and, and fake owners and all this kind of stuff in order to evade any kind of oversight by Dudley. So it takes Dudley a long time to kind of pierce this sort of carapace of, of lies that Bullock manages, has managed to construct. So that's, again, part of the struggle. But then the problem, Dudley's problem is, is that he has no enforcement mechanism himself. He doesn't have any cops. He can't do anything. He has to then prove, and again, he's also underwater, God's sake, don't blow anything up and, yeah. and or Liverpool, uh, you know, no matter how deserved, you know, don't start interfering in this stuff. Otherwise, we're the ones who are going to be in trouble. So he has to prove it legally and he has to get sort of affidavits and testimonies and eyewitnesses and all this kind of stuff. And he has to bring it to Charles Francis Adams at the embassy. Adams has to then go to the foreign office. You know, there, there are sort of processes you have to follow here and persuade Lord Russell, who's the foreign secretary, that this is indeed a Confederate ship in all but name and that this is a huge lie. Right. And then trying to pull a fast one on you. So it takes Dudley a long time 
to get the, the, the British on side on this. But the Lisbon Act is kind of that hammer of Damocles over the whole thing. And it's Dudley trying to prove that it's military ships versus Bullock trying to find these different ways. The first ship he builds is the William C. Miller and Sons. It's going to be the ship, the Aretto, right? And this is going to be a 700-ton warship. They're building this ship, and everyone knows that it's going to be Confederate, but Dudley specifically, but he has no way to prove it. And it's interesting how, you know, he... He gets little tips like you mentioned before. You know, he's going to have people coming to him and he's going to have spies and people ratting him out. He discovers that the engines are made by a company called Fawcett uh, Preston. And he remembers that those that's the same company that built the cannon that fired in Fort Sumter. A little bit of clues here and there that make him think that maybe this boat was not really you know, built for Italy. The real owner is probably Charles Prelow. How these, these boats get built is fascinating. You mentioned how... Everything went on, you know, so you, you have a, a basically a fake crew of crews of sailors who didn't know what they were in for and a captain. So the, the Aretto was a guy named James Dagwit and they'd sail out and then they'd be basically the tugboat would come with the guns and then you'd have someone like a John Moffat come on, who was a Confederate naval officer. And they raised the Confederate flag and they say, you know, who wants to be involved? Dudley had, had, he had one strike against him the whole time he didn't realize. He didn't realize that there was an agent working within the British government who was a spy. And they called him Agent X. And he's somebody, so whenever he felt, whenever Dudley thought he had the upper hand, that he's going to go and raid this boat and, and prove that it's, a, that it's a gun runner. Bullock always seemed to know right before. And it happened with this boat, happened on the next boat. And it's because of, of Buckley, Victor Buckley, who was an agent X working within the government, who has always seemed to undermine him. Be instrumental later in the whole thing coming undone. But there were so many people involved in this that were just, that Bullock had such a network set up that it's just fascinating to see how the, the cloak and dagger works with this. It's a great story about the agent. When Dudley comes over, he can't work out what's going on. I mean, Bullock is, you know, just runs everything, Liverpool is, you know, 99% against the Union. Dudley has very, very few friends. The Union has very few friends in Liverpool. This is a Confederate town. When Bullock showed up and first showed up in, in Liverpool, he couldn't get over it. He was over the moon because he saw more Confederate bunting and flags in Liverpool than he'd seen in Richmond. I mean, it was just, it was incredibly <laughs> pro. So Dudley's on very hostile ground here. Everyone seems to be conspiring against him. At one point he compiles, and this is a bit in the book, where he manages to compile that the, you know, a, sort of a secret list of the Confederate network within Liverpool. And there's hundreds of firms that Bullock could call on, hundreds of friends who, who could put up some money and all this kind of stuff and, and serve as, as cutouts and so on. But at the, And at the same time, Bullock just seems to be able to outplay him every single time. He always seems to be able to see around a corner before he, he can see him coming. I mean, he doesn't understand how this is happening. It takes him a long time to figure it out. One of the big sort of aces that Bullock had up his sleeve was this kind of a mole or an agent, an ally of the South called Buck, Victor, young man called Victor Buckley, who worked on the American desk at the Foreign Office in London. And, you know, an, in an interesting character in his own right. And at key times, he would give the tip off to Bullock and say, because he would see all the correspondence coming between Adams and, and his superior, Lord Russell, uh, on these matters. And he would say, look, Dudley's managed to get all these affidavits. The un uh, with you know British customs officials are going to be swooping probably in two days. So if you want to save everything, take action, kind of thing. Mm. Bullock would you know get the ship out you know just by a remarkable coincidence you know mere hours before an inspection was about to happen that would have uncovered the fact that this was actually a clandestine warship. A second thing is is that you know Bullock had his own methods, and one of those things was that I, I sort of found it in, in in his papers. He had paid off Clark in uh, Dudley had a solicitor called Mister Square. Squarey was an excellent Victorian <laughs> solicitor's kind of name, very, you know, honest fellow called Squarey. He, you know, he had a clock and he would be feeding him all of the information, you know, all the stuff that copies of the affidavits and all the information that Dudley had. So, you know, the, the so Bullock was fully aware of what was going on. And that was the key to his, this being, his being able to pull off all these amazing magic tricks, these great works of psychic prediction of what was about to happen. But in fact, he wasn't. Dudley finds out once he begins cracking this case that he's not a great magician he's a kind of a cheap conjurer he has some tricks i believe but he's now being found out and that's when the sort of the shoe moves to the other foot and dudley starts striking back he's got his own friends now so the aretto is going to turn into the css florida there'll be a second boat that was called the enrica which would be the same thing and that's that second phase now so now you've got the you've got these boats now that are going to attack these merchant ships and you have some colorful characters raphael sems is a 
great villain if, if you study his, the Civil War. His picture is just, I looked at his picture, I'm like, is this, like, again, it goes back, this needs to be a movie or a TV show because he's just such a, like, he looks like a mean guy. He does have a, an impressive mustache. Yes. Uh, like, again, wow. he has a, sort of a, as you say, a sort of a, a villain twirling kind of mustache. Yep. He was very proud mustache yeah he was a very odd intense you know remote tyrant on board uh, a great character one of these great civil war characters mm-hmm. that you, you don't find nowadays well, he, was, he was you know right sems was a hard dictator of a man he hated everybody from new england so he must have been a steeler fan probably <laughs> but but he but that's how he was he, he was just a guy a real just a real real tough guy to deal with but you know what though when he took his boat out with that second boat you know out of the 90 original sailors who came all but 10 offer to stay on so as hard as he was and this will become the the css alabama that second runner now this raider so he certainly had a had a way with them so as this is all going on now you've got phase one done phase two is on its way so the whole overall plan if you're if you're trying to break a blockade one great way to do it is attack the merchants to force lincoln to pull his boats off the line to start chasing these runners down and that's going to create more gaps it's also going to hurt morale because don't forget the south wasn't winning this war on might they were going to win it on will mm-hmm. and they wanted people to, to lose that will they were plundering this is a story where i think it was Mappet's boat where he pulled two you know basically two million bucks worth of tea and gold off this and off, off the, uh, the jacob bell and there's all kinds of stories about how this was you're talking you know this is civil war but we're talking pirates now and other t- things like this piracy on the open seas these are the things that are just it's just so in- intriguing to study you know you mentioned dudley was kind of getting wind of it finally one of his spies like a whistleblower was a guy named clarence young who was instrumental going forward this and maybe um what were your thoughts about that was was the letters he provided dudley specifically between Bullock and Stephen Mallory to help kind of give a little bit more credence to the stuff that Dil- that Dudley was accusing people like Prelovers where we were doing. Yeah, Clarence Young is again a, a, a kind of an awful man, but an interesting mm-hmm. character, kind of a tragic figure in a way. I mean, he was very unpleasant. He had originally been one of Bullock's kind of private secretaries you know, in Liverpool, you know, a young man, I think his family were from Georgia. They, you know, they went back a few generations, the Youngs and the Bullocks had kind of known each other. Or there's a couple of little kinship connections there, you know, distant ones. Bullock thinks he's a nice fellow. He, you know, he's quite efficient. He does his work, but you know, he's also privy to a lot of very, very sensitive correspondence. When the Alabama goes out, you know, Bullock arranges for, cause he, Bullock needs uh, someone he can trust on board. He sends Young out to be, I think the purser. Young at that point begins to act up. He seems as not the kind of captain you act up with. So there were some accusations that Young had been a little light-fingered with the cash on board. The seaman's pay was kind of missing. And what's more, he used to get drunk a lot, not really be as, as ship-shape as seems demanded. You know, ship, uh, seems ran a very, very tight ship. So he gets dumped in, I think it's Jamaica. So there seems drums him off the ship in, in ignominy. Like Jack Sparrow, and, right? Yeah. Dumped on the I, island. I guess, yeah, exactly like that. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, so it seems goes off and then he does his own, uh, you know, uh, well, he would say privateering. People say piracy. You know, one man's pirate is another man's privateer, as they say. Young is obviously very angry, wants revenge. You know, he manages through uh, various means. He marries, he's a big, he becomes a bigamist, marries a woman, basically takes her money takes her back to to Liverpool then kind of leaves her in a hotel and and does a runner takes her money and does a runner tries to do a runner back to the US yes he's he's not a one of the great um you know great uh, valiant men of our time but he runs out of money just as he's about to get on a ship to the US well he just says okay fine I need some money so he gets this package of paper he actually is a walk-in he goes to the, to the American embassy in London, demands to see Charles Francis Adams and says, you know, I've got the mother of all secrets and I know how Bullock does it. And Adams is quite interested. And it's just by it's one of these weird historical coincidences. It's, it's just at that moment that Dudley walks in to the embassy from Liverpool. He'd been on a train with a package of letters backing up everything that Clarence Young has been saying because he had bought those letters from Clarence Young's, well, second wife in Liverpool, who was uh, understandably quite aggrieved at, at young Clarence, <laughs> being dumped in the middle of nowhere. With this, with the young 
walk-in plus these documents. I mean, they had everything. Because remember, Bullock had always kept hands off. He'd, his name hadn't been any contracts. Suddenly, he's got all of this hard copy with Bullock's signature on everything, going back and forth with the Confederates. I mean, just blowing this whole charade of, you know, I'm just an innocent businessman over here building civilian shit, you know, out of the story out of the water. And that's when Dudley knows that he has Bullock. He's finally got the goods on him. But it's not quite as simple a story as that he then, that's the end of the story. I mean, it, it actually, right. the whole thing blows up in his, in, in his face later on. Yeah, like in any mafia movie, you know, you get you get the bookkeeper. That's the guy you want, especially a yep. disgruntled bookkeeper. And that's what Clarence yeah, Young like, was. Like Charles Grodin is the, you know, the, yeah. the accountant kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so now Dudley now, and this is right around the same time where that third phase is beginning. This is when the Laird Rams come into the story. There are two ironclad boats. These are 225 feet long with a metal ram, rotating gun turrets. These are state-of-the-art steam engines. These are the boats that can help you have the best army in the world, just navy in the world. For the Lairds, they build kind of the specifically iron boats. Well, they did some wooden ones too, but mostly iron boats. But these are the state-of-the-art. These are big projects. And they're going to build two boats. And these are going to be the boats that are going to be used to punch Lincoln's navy in the mouth. These aren't blockade runners. These aren't raiders. These are going to be the warships. So obviously right off the bat, there's no way in the world you're going to get around the Enlistment Act with this one. So you know they're going to be military boats. So they're going to be issues right off the bat. And so Bullock, it's going to be a challenge for him to figure this thing out. And this is when you're going to basically introduce two more characters into the story, Adrian and Francois Brevet. This is kind of one of those, if you're going to have a spy type story, you need people like this. It's kind of the yin and the yang of brothers of how they ultimately play itself out. Their story of how they end up pulling Egypt into this and trying to find a scapegoat to, to build these boats to get these boats back is, is, is probably my favorite part of how this whole thing went down. And I'm sure um, I'm sure you enjoyed looking at that yourself. It was a complicated, very murky case to unpick and mm -hmm. unpack exactly what happened during this, the Laird Rams affair. You're right. You know, these are two ironclad warships that you cannot pass off as civilian ships. And so Bullock has to come up with some kind of great cover story. The, the fact is, is that at the time, there were many countries in the world where the governments wanted to build navies. I mean, the Chinese emperor, for instance, was in the market for building a, building a navy. You know, they were, they were shopping for ships. I mean, why not? Bullock comes up with this idea that uses a, as an intermediary, this very dubious pair of French financiers called the Braves, who were, again, a, a bit of an odd couple, but they had a lot of connections in Egypt, which was then very, very close to, to France. And they made a fortune. And it's kind of a long story, a very complicated story. Short, one of the Braves kind of pretends or comes up with a story that the ruler of Egypt, the, sort of the Grand Pasha of Egypt, had ordered these two warships for his navy. And that Brave was the kind of the arms dealer and he was going to deal with the, the Laird shipyards and it was all going to be in his name and all this kind of stuff. It was a great cover story. The point is, is that what was going to happen was is that they the two ships would be in Brave's name by the Lairds for an official government commission. Nothing wrong with that. And they would go out to sea and then they then then ownership would be transferred back to Bullock. And then the you know a Confederate crew would come aboard and then these things would go out and, and sink the, the Navy. They were more powerful than anything the Navy had, the US Navy had at the time. Indeed, most navies had. It, it all goes to pieces through various means because as Dudley starts investigating this cover story, and it gets more and more more and more murky about which you know Egyptian ruler actually gave this permission. Do you have anything on paper? And all you know, it's sort of it's a very it, obviously a shady story once you start looking into it. And Dudley then finally manages to persuade Lord Russell, the foreign secretary, that this is garbage. Ridiculous. It, it's a great story because, you know, Francois Brevet, he meets Saeed Pasha. He's at a shoe store and, his, and he ends up having this friendship with them, making all this money. And he makes the deal with with with, um, with Saeed. But before he can get the contract done, Saeed dies. He's 40 years old. He's a big party guy. If I remember yeah. correctly, didn't he die after like drinking like a bunch of champagne all at once and just died? There was some, some random death to him. But he was, he was a party guy. He only had a verbal agreement to build these ships. His The guy who took over for Saeed is a guy named Ishmael Pasha. And they didn't get along. And so when he, when Brevet goes and he's questioned about this, and he has these boats, he says, I've got a verbal contract. 
And that's really the, where they kind of hang their hat on is we don't have anything specific. Brevet is going to name these boats the El Tassan and the El Monacere. And he tries to play it out a certain way. You know, once these ships are ready to go, and they're probably talking, we're talking like October, November, 1863, right about now, it's all kind of falling apart. And it's, and it's a great way how it all finds out because they find out in a way by going at the other brother. And, and, that, and that's a great story is when the French go to question Adrian about this arrangements. And this is kind of where the whole, un the unraveling really begins. Adrian was the, the brother who was, uh, used to stay at the office in, in back in Paris. Mm -hmm. It was his brother, Francois, who was, you know, the real wheeler dealer kind of guy. Adrian was, uh, you know, the weak link and the British start investigating, you know, Lord Russell, he, you know, he's heard about it from Dudley, doesn't quite believe him. Maybe it's true, but this is a bit far-fetched. I mean, not even, not even Bullock would try something so audacious. Russell had also checked with the laird, the, you know, the great ship owners, the great shipyard guys, and they had told him, no, we don't know anything about this. No, no, these are for the Egyptian Navy. So they would have had to have lied directly to his face, which is inconceivable. This could not be happening. But anyway, he checks right. out. But Adrian gets squeezed in Paris along the lines of, we begin to think that this is rubbish. We're going to crush you. <laughs> and we're going to get the, the French government to crush you. Essentially, the, you know, you could be spending the next 50 years in prison or you could start talking. And you could, by doing that, you could save not only yourself, but your brother. And maybe you'll come out of this with a small profit if we buy the ships from you just to get them to clear them off the board. So that's when Adrian cracks and then he shows them what's in the safe. And there's you know, sort of the smoking gun that links Bravet to Bullock to the Lairds, all essentially conspiring to to break the Foreign Enlistment Act. And that's sort of the final piece of the puzzle. At that point, it doesn't matter if you have a mole in the Foreign Office. At that point, you have Royal Marines being sent in to occupy the Lairds shipyard and to take over and to put a, a huge gun warship right in front of the Laird's building works to make sure that no ships are leaving that yard to go out to sea. But, you know, so that, that's essentially how it, it all, that, that brings Bullock to heel. I mean, he, he, he'll try. There's a few, he has a few other small successes, but essentially, is you know, the back is broken on this thing directly because of Dudley. He sends Russell's man, his name was Captain Hoare, a very unfortunate name, not <laughs> nothing, but, he, but that's what it was. He goes to go meet with him. He threatened him and he goes, well, let me go to my safe. Let me show you these notarized contracts between James Bullock and the Lairds, a notarized agreement between the two. It was that ironclad, see what I did there? Piece of evidence <laughs> that they that they needed. In the, in the, and so for Dudley, you know, it, it seems that it's case closed. And to your point, there are some things that go on a little bit later. It's not as cut and dry. But this is finally what it was. Bullock was busted. He's going to tell Stephen Mallory, that the, the Secretary of the Navy of the Confederacy, it was an act which caused me greater pain and I regret that I ever conceived it possible to feel. Because now he's going to sell these boats to the British. That's what he's going to have to do. Plan of this third phase of attack with these boats, it just isn't going to happen. Dudley finally won this battle over the Rams, and, and Bullock finally lost. And that must have felt so good for Dudley. It must have, just to, to, for when Adrian pulled out those papers. Because Bullock had always, like you said, kept his name out of it. He never used his real name except in a real small number of cases. And now he's got the goods that ties him together completely. That's essentially the, you know, it's, it's not the end of the story by any means. Right. Uh, they, they're still, I mean, Bullock is not the kind of guy who just goes, oh, okay, well, I'll, you know, and that's it. I'm going to walk away now. He's, he's still, still another year and a half of the war to go. But it's, you know, Bullock is, is from that moment, he's on his back foot. He's not the one playing offense. He's, he's on the defense. And Dudley has has the upper hand here. And the, one of the reasons is, is that British public opinion had shifted since the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the same atmosphere of Confederate flags everywhere in 1861, 1862. By 1863, as even Dudley notices, in Liverpool, this is, this is the heartland of, of Dixieism in the UK, there are huge halls that are being packed out with thousands of people coming to abolitionist speeches intended to become pro-union. So there's this shift in Liverpool and within the country at large. But essentially, Dudley's got, he's got some disadvantages, but Dudley has the wind at his back. Bullock knows this. A, trying to wind down operations and B, get out of this with Charles Prelo, the, the dark financier of the whole thing, save their skins, you know, just to try and destroy any evidence of what had happened. They have a couple of more successes, small successes. This is just, you know, the, you know, this game is winding down, you know, and then we move into the, the final part of the book. Yeah. And then certainly, you know, the, the money taps out uh, November 1864, Lincoln's going to be reelected. They had those Erlanger bonds. 
bonds, which are basically bonds that you could buy, you could buy to, to get caught later on. And if the Union Army had won, those bonds were completely worthless. You kind of, it was a high risk, high reward. And it was like the stock market. As the Union did well, it dropped. As the Southern, as the southern states did well, it rose. But they'd be worthless at the end. And so the money starts to, start to, starts to run out. And then, so when you get to that point, the final stage of kind of tying the whole thing together, to me, the writing was on the wall for all of this, but but they didn't go down easy. They really didn't. Uh, and it took a while for Dudley to finally be able to get what he felt was just cause and, and finally put Bullock away, although it never really happened that way. But it certainly to get to that point, you know, Charles Prelow at that point was he was running out. He was running out of money as well. He'll end up dying after the war, basically humiliated. But there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into this beyond that. But you can clearly see with the Emancipation Proclamation, which was a huge deal with Lincoln reelection. And then the, the blockade starting to show a little more teeth. It was less cotton getting back and forth. And then when the bonds started falling, you could see the cash running out. And that's really the beginning of the end in most cases like this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, also the U.S. Navy is just getting better at catching blockade runners. The early years of the war, I mean, hundreds of these things were getting through. If you were, a, you know, someone who was wanted a, a fancy a little bit of a bet, if you lived in Liverpool, you would invest in a blockade runner like 1861, 1862. And you could almost guarantee that you would triple your money. I mean, you, you have to, wow. if you look at the money, but you would, it was a good investment and it was fun. You got that kind of thrill of breaking the law, yeah. doing the right thing for the South kind of thing. But essentially it was a money proposition. Mm. The problem is, is that as the U.S. Navy gets better and better intercepting these blockade runners, they just get, they, and they, they change their own tactics to catch more of them in the net so to speak, as they're getting in, as they're going in and out of the ports, is that this becomes a very expensive bit of speculation. At one point, you know, one of if fifty percent of these runners are being caught uh, at a time, as opposed to ninety percent of them getting through beforehand, then what happens is is that once the Union captures a ship, you know, the whole thing is taken off the board. The captain, the crew, they're all taken prisoner. The ship and everything on it, your entire investment just went like that. Yeah, you're not going to be so keen on investing. <laughs> anymore, especially since the South doesn't have the kind of money to pay for it, this stuff anymore. I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's nowhere near as profitable. So you've got that problem. And then, so, which is squeezing pre-low very, very hard. You've got the breakdown of the embargo. You know, you've got, you know, the great shift in public opinion towards the North. And you've got all these mounting potential legal problems. And also, as you said, the Erlijan loan, the bonds problem that Prelo had huge amounts invested in this. He was one of the great organizers of this thing, which was some of the funds of it were being diverted into Bullock's shipbuilding. Again, you know, as soon as the South starts really losing battles and the speculators can see that the South is on the losing, you know, the price of the bonds is going, you know, you know, your worldly wealth is caught up in these things. I mean, you're done. That's it. Now, Prelo and Bullock still have a couple of little surprises, you know, before they try and agitate a little bit to prevent Lincoln becoming president by pushing, um, I haven't, what's his name? Uh, the general. Um, McClellan. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, by pushing his suit because mm -hmm. they think that they, he'll, uh, he'll uh, you know, arrange an armistice with the South and they can totally drag out a kind yeah. of a kind of a vague piece out of this whole thing. But of course it fails and Lincoln gets reelected. And, and after that, it's this is just really a matter of basically getting rid of evidence yeah. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and trying to make sure that you don't get dragged back to the United States for a trial of some kind. But again, you're right in that Dudley believes at the end of the war that Bullock escaped justice because Bullock's clever enough not to be incriminated you know to be caught out mm -hmm. and he cuts into the new union authorities with the United States authorities to sort of let him off the hook but that you know for Dudley this guy had created so many problems he wasn't funny this wasn't the game he wants to br really bring him to justice and so he do he doesn't drop he doesn't simply forgive and forget yeah. he he does neither essentially. Must be so frustrating for Dudley because, you know, Bullock, and even even after the, it was all over with, he had a boat that was basically commandeered by the federal government. And so after the war, the, the government paid him, was like 8000 bucks. They gave him $8,000 for the loss of his boat. So even after this whole thing of, you know, to trying to destroy the Union Navy, he ended up receiving money from the Union Navy for taking one of his boats at the end of the war. So he just seemed to fall back into it all the time. And, you know, after the war, he's going to try to, he was going to try to write a story he's going to try to tell his story. If I remember correctly, he became a British citizen somewhere along the way mm -hmm. to stay out there. But he tries to get that book published. You know, he tries to do it and he has no luck until uh, until his nephew, which you mentioned before, is Teddy Roosevelt, who's going to help him up, hook him up with uh, G.P. Putnam to help him publish his book. And 
it was great because these stories of a bullet going to Long Island and sitting with Teddy and it is talking war, talking Navy in 1877. Bullock is a guy when he will die, you know, he's going to be buried in England. His stone says American by birth, British by choice, right in his gravestone. He's, a, he's just a fascinating, fascinating guy. When Teddy Roosevelt is going to write his book himself, he's going to write a book called The Naval War of 1812. He's going to credit Captain James Bullock, formerly of the U.S. Navy, as one of his references. It doesn't mention a word about the Confederates. So he seems to always land on his feet historically or however you want to play it. Versus Dudley seems to be the guy who just just keeps falling on himself. He, he gets there at the end, but he doesn't get that resolution, that satisfaction that he thinks he's going to get. Like you said, he felt Bullock got, got off very, very easy for what he did. Bullock was clever enough to have been able to cut a deal at the end yeah. of the war with the uh, with the U.S. authorities. You know, he would cooperate, you know, to a limited extent, you know, and again, covering up a lot more than he gave away. And in return, the U.S., you know, the, look, the United States wasn't, after the war, was not that interested in chasing up old Confederates. You know, I mean, they just they had, you know, there was Reconstruction. There was like a lot of there a lot of other problems going on that yeah. they had to deal with, rather than dealing with some guys like Bullock who had been foreign agents in a foreign country and. You know, getting them back to the U.S. was going to be a real trouble anyway. Was there any will, political will, to, to prosecute them? And, you know, from Bullock's point of view, too, he could say, well, one of the reasons he took out becoming a British subject was precisely to stop that kind of, any kind of potential problem, start taking British subjects back to America for a trial. But it was never going to really happen anyway. You know, they've got other things to do. Dudley, that's just not enough. I mean, because Bullock just gets away clean. I mean, he becomes a respectable cotton businessman after the war. So Dudley continues to crusade and he says, look, someone has to pay for this. Something has to be exposed. And so he agitates and persuades Adams, this is a great idea, that to basically sue, I mean, just very put simply, sue the British government after the war in Geneva for the damages caused by the Florida and the Alabama on American shipping that he said the British had kind of turned a blind eye to. It's a colossal case, very, very uh, interesting case. And at the end of it, you know, the British kind of, I think it's, you know- It was 15 million, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they make the problem go away. Yeah. They kind of- yeah. Don't admit guilt kind of thing. and But they pay off about $15 million in gold to the U.S. for these damages caused by, you know, carelessness. You know, $50 million in 1872, when the, the Alabama claims arbitration happened, was, you know, a lot of money. So the U.S. did very well out of this. But what it does is, is that Bullock's name is mentioned repeatedly over and over and over and over again in the testimony that put together and the affidavits put together by Dudley and, and uttered by Adams, who was the U.S. representative in, in Geneva on this. So yes, yeah, so, uh, so Bullock is exposed as the sort of the centerpiece of this whole of the Confederate clandestine Navy and it was a, as the proximate cause of all of these losses. Dudley does get a measure of, of revenge and justice on this. So I, it, it, it's a bit of a happy ending. You know, the U.S. was shoot, shooting for the moon with England. I mean, you look at that court case. I mean, one of the things they said, give us Canada, we'll call it even. Mary, you yeah. wouldn't like that. Yeah, like I that, know. Yeah, you know. It's like, give us Canada. Put us on the chopping block. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So but there's a lot of deals. But you know, the Brit the British were in 1872. The British were more concerned with you know creating you know Anglo-American amity for the great you know yeah. the world to come. There were challenges from from a, a you know resurrected Germany and all this kind of stuff. So they just wanted to be friends after the little embarrassment of the Civil War. So yeah, they paid out, and then everybody's buddies. That yeah. was essentially how this deal worked. You know, a happy uh, development was that that Bullock got nailed to the wall on it as well. Yeah, yeah. His perception-wise, I mean, D Dudley will get his, his just suppose a little bit with, with that. But I but I think it's it's such a fascinating study to talk about it. Dully himself will die. He'll he'll have a heart attack leaving a Philadelphia train station mm -hmm. right down on Broad Street, actually. And so his story is going to end. But it, he, but really all these people are just people who I don't want to say have been lost to history, but are not A-listers. And what's great about your book, Alex, is you, you're bringing them alive again, is now people who read your book are going to sit there and say, you know, I'm going to study this more. I want to find this. is There's so much intrigue. There's so many cool people involved in this I never would have heard about. And that's what history is all about. It's bringing people back to life again who don't have a voice anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they just, they, 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 again, you're, you're dealing with very, very, you know, distinct, you know, idiosyncratic characters. And, you know, they're very typical of the Victorian era, these mm -hmm. one of these. I think uh, I think I said it about Sanford somewhere that he was he's one of these sort of types of Victorians that you don't you don't really see anymore. Like if you told them some venture was perilous, they would say, "Excellent, sign me up." Yeah, you know, let's go. <laughs> 
great these great world builders and conquerors and that kind of thing so you see a lot of that with the war especially when they're pushed to the forefront in these in these grand sort of titanic clashes of ideologies and yeah and i think too like the confederate navy and the the union navy the navy overall in the civil war is not something that it doesn't get studied a lot by people and that's another thing your book does is it kind of i think it's it would pique the interest of somebody to look further into it it's a great jumping off point to get more into it when i was coming up with the idea you know a long time ago but it took me a while to Mm -hmm. figure out how to do it how to break the story you know i didn't want to do you know, another uh, blue and the gray, you know, I've look, I've written about Gettysburg before and in, 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 in men of war, you know, great stuff. It's just, I didn't want to do buying during the land war. I mean, there's been books before about people like Bell Boyd and Rose Greenhow and all this, but I, what I really liked was that a was the Navy, which again, is an understudied unappreciated yeah. aspect of not just the civil war, but many wars, the maritime theater. Uh, the second was, is that it took place not even in America. It took place in Britain. Third, there's, there's no uniforms in it. There's no Gettysburg in it. There's, it's just two very different men basically fighting each other, sort of, you know, two men enter, one man leaves, kind of, sort of a Liverpudlian Thunderdome of sorts. That's a, it's a great story. It's and I learned so much reading your book and it's such a it's a great story to tell what's next for you Alex what's what's next on the plate for you I just signed a contract to write a similar kind of book you know short fast you know about intelligence about a subject I thought I'd, I I always swore I'd never do and that was but of course I ended up doing it is uh, you know World War II so I was oh. like oh, I think there's enough books about World War II <laughs> so, <laughs> is there anything new to say about World War II and it turns out there actually is there's a very interesting intelligence war that, that went on uh, vis-a-vis the sort of the search uh, the, to capture a German U-boat and take it alive. And it's a great, fantastic story about these, these again, two men, but, you know, this time they're allies, not enemies. One of them handles the intelligence aspects of tracking and finding this submarine, you know, in the middle of, of, of the Atlantic. And the other guy is this kind of rogue captain who is determined like like Ahab. It's his big dream that he just wants to bring in a U-boat and sail this thing through New York Harbor with it like an American as one of those like you know as the Romans used to do they used to bring back yeah. you know the, the trophies and the uh, during their triumphs that's what he wanted to do so it's this fantastic story so I'm, I'm sort of writing it now I'm sort of you know a naval story for some reason I don't know why that's just a coincidence I think yeah. and Mayor what's up for what's next for us next we have to come up with our some more podcasts to do past uh, episode 100 which obviously we will be we are going to be having a hangout in Gettysburg on February the 18th at one o'clock at Fourscore Brewing so that's in celebration of our 100th episode we will be doing that huge thank you to all our listeners for these past 100 episodes couldn't be here without you and huge thank you to Alex Rose for joining us to talk about his book The Lion and the Fox thank you so much for joining us with this I think this is this is a great story and it's, it's you tell the story so so well you'll be joining us in our book club here pretty soon yes that's the other thing people. to let our listeners know um, right. before we but, we end this episode is um, yeah the book club we uh, will be joined by Alex to talk about the book club about his book so join us for that come on ask questions and all that we will be able to talk more about The Lion and the Fox at that time so Darren any parting words no, I think it's great. Alex, it's an honor to have you on here. We love your past work. You've, uh, some of the stuff you've written, the stuff that's been on television, it's just fantastic to have you on here. And it's a great story to tell. You're a great storyteller. And you you know, the ultimate compliment I can give anybody is you, you bring these people back to life again. You did an absolutely fantastic job at this. You did all these people, you did, did these people a great service by doing this book. Well, thank, thanks for saying that. It was, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you found it interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a wrap for episode 100. So we will be back with our listeners when this episode drops. We're on to episode 101. So thank you, Darren, for being an awesome co-host. And thank you, Alex, for joining us for this episode. And we will see everybody else on the other side. (laughs) 